Right, so uh, so we he, he just introduced uh, Ovadia, who is uh, looking for Eliyahu, basically. I mean, he was supposed to be looking for Eliyahu, but what happens is basically Eliyahu comes, comes to him and uh, surprises him. And uh, he's been charged with the responsibility of finding Eliyahu, but it tells you, it prefaces the conversation by saying that... Uh, that he was, um, he fears Hashem very much. And when Izevel tried to get rid of all the Nevi'im, he was, um, he protected them. He hid a hundred Nevi'im, 50 in each cave and provided them with sustenance to uh, avoid the decree of Izevel. So you could see that he's a, he's a good guy. Okay, so go ahead. That's okay. So what did he tell him to do? It's a, it's a desperate situation, right? He, he, wants, he tells him to go to every place where there might be a river and maybe they'll find some blades of grass that all the animals won't die because it's such a bad... Uh, because the drought is so bad. You could find a little bit of grass so the horses won't all die. Yeah. Now notice that. I mean, that's pretty. That's pretty. That's pretty crazy. I mean, Achav is going searching for grass. He's the king. So you can see that on one hand, that's a that's a commentary on the desperation of the uh, of the people, but that's also uh, that points to the characteristic of Achav that is good, which is that he he's a doer. He cares about the people. He's you know. He's out there, literally out in the field, looking for grass to keep the uh, animals alive. He he cares about the welfare of the people, so he's out there looking. That's what tells you about his relationship with Avadia. He didn't take other people, just Avadia, which means he really cared for him. Right, and he, tru- he trusts him. He trusts him. Right. Yeah. So how, how did Avadia continue providing for a hundred of them if he's out there looking for? Yeah, I don't. Well, I don't know how long. I don't know how long this 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 grass searching mission took, I mean, maybe, maybe, you know, he took care of whatever he needed to for however long the grass searching was going to be. And then, you know, he, when he got back, he resumed or whatever. Yeah, that's a good, I, I would, I'm, I'm assuming, I'm assuming that the, uh, that the palace imports food from outside. Yeah, meaning that they're not going to starve. You know, the, the wealthy people import food from from outside. It's uh, that that's what I, that's what I would guess. It even you know where did the bread that the that the ravens brought to Eliyahu come from? So the Gemara says, oh, it was from the it was from Yehoshaphat's kitchen, or it was from uh, it was from Achav's kitchen, maybe. 
So meaning that, you know, they did have food, but they probably had to pay a lot of money to bring it from faraway places where they weren't stricken by the drought. Yeah, Sean. I probably had to check. <laughs> was there a date on the packaging? Yeah, there was a code. Yeah. <laughs> See, that, that's one thing easy about here. Everything is Yashan, you know? It's good. It's easy. You don't have to think about it. You forget that you have to worry about that else, elsewhere when you're here because it's uh, everything is uh, the same standard. Right now, it's Shemitah is the thing here. So you have a lot of different opinions about Shemitah, people who are very religious and uh, very uh, strict about the Shemitah, and they won't eat the uh, they won't eat the heter uh, mechira. And then there are people who, you know, they only eat the otzar betin, or they only eat the this. You know, they have like a lot of different um, levels of observance of the Shemitah, and uh, and it could be a source of uh, some you know, disagreement among people. But, you know, anyway. Yeah, go ahead. Hmm. Right, so he wasn't looking for him. Uh, he, he He's going to say that they went looking for him all over the place, but he was actually just looking for grass. And he runs into him. And you can imagine that uh, that this is an interesting meeting. <laughs> First of all, he calls him Adoni Eliyahu, which is uh, obviously a sign of great respect, but we know that uh, Ovadia is a person that respects Nevi'im and probably has a great reverence for Eliyahu and understands what kind of a person he is, even if he's been working for in the administration of Ahav, he's the kind of a person that works in an administration while he's holding his nose type of guy, meaning, you know, he's, uh, he, he, he figures that it's better to uh, work from within the system to try to improve it than, uh, than stand outside the system and protest like uh, Eliyahu. So they have a different attitude, but uh, Ovadiao is, a, is also someone who sympathizes in other words, there's probably not much that they disagree on ideologically, but uh, they disagree on method that, you know, Ovadia figures that the way to, it's like sometimes you'll find like, for instance, Chabad rabbis. I remember when I was in Maryland, the Chabad rabbi joined with like the um, Jewish Federation and he was like a big volunteer for the Jewish Federation and uh, very active, even though the Jewish Federation is like totally secular and does a lot of things that uh, really are not things that any of us would feel comfortable supporting. But he felt that that was a way to be active in the community and to reach more people in the community. He even got like an award for his uh, volunteering for the Jewish uh, Federation, which was so interesting, but just sort of, I always think of that. Obviously a Chabadnik, there's a lot of things Jewish Federation is doing that he would be far from comfortable with, but he saw it as a way to serve the community and he figured he could have his input and have an influence on Jewish communal matters by being a part. And that's why I always think 
Well, that's the same logic of a person maybe will be on a, the board of an organization that maybe thinks that the agenda of the board or the agenda of the organization is not exactly to his liking, but that's how you influence things in the positive direction you join, right? So that's what Ovadia's idea is. So he, he respects Eliyahu. He says, uh, my master, he falls on the ground and bows to him, right? Which is the ultimate sign of kavod. He obviously knew what was Eliyahu because he wouldn't have fallen on the ground and bowed to him before he said that. But then he says, Are, is that you, Eliyahu, my master Eliyahu? Okay, okay go ahead. Right. So he says, Ani, yes, I am. He does not, he is not interested in having a protracted conversation with this individual. He just says, Ani, yes, I am. Right? It's very simple. Are you Eliyahu? Yes, that's it. Go tell your master, here is Eliyahu. Do you notice what he did there? You called me your master, but go tell your real master that I'm here. Yeah. Meaning, <laughs> you, you called me your master as if you actually consider me the Navi, your master, but your real true master, Ahab, the corrupt guy, go tell him that I'm here. In other words, there's a, there's a, uh, there's a little bit of a veiled or not so veiled critique of Ovadia being a sellout uh, and, you know, partnering with the corrupt Achav that he's saying to him, oh, you call me your master, but uh, we both know who your real master is, the guy who signs the checks. Right? So that, that, that's what he's telling him. Okay. Then he says what? What does he mean? Can I go on to one more? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Right, so he's saying you're putting me in a dangerous position because... Uh, so you kind of says why. He says, Right. The problem is that I can't trust that you're real. You're saying that you're here right now, but I could turn around and uh, you could do another one of your disappearing acts. And then I'm caught, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to go tell Ahab that you're here and he's going to have my head for misleading him that uh, we found Eliyahu. People have been looking for you for the past three years, haven't been able to find you. And all of a sudden I'm going to show up and tell him that you're here and uh, we're going to turn around. And you're going to be gone and he's going to he's going to blame it on me. Don't put me in that kind of a situation that you're going to disappear into thin air. You really had a reputation for just like disappearing. Yeah. You have to be someone that really doesn't care about society to just disappear. And yeah. That's what it is. Yeah, it's like he's not bound by anything. He doesn't have a family, no wife, no children, no community, nobody he has to really be around. He so hasn't put down he, any roots. Yeah, why would he disappear? Yeah. Yeah. So, 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 but the point is, he's saying, You want me to go to Tel Achav? He's like, I've been a. Uh, 
I've been a servant of God from my youth. In other words, you're treating me like some dispensable lackey of Achav, but I'm not. I'm actually a person who fears God. Don't put me in a compromising position. Uh, and, and then he says, Hello, God at the city. Right? D- doesn't the master know what I did? So he assumed that Eliyahu would be aware of that, which is interesting. Right? He assumed that uh, whatever I'm doing, of course, Hashem has uh, revealed to Eliyahu. Because why? Because probably because obviously Eliyahu knew where he was. Right? He didn't he didn't find him in the uh he didn't find him by chance. Eliyahu knew where to go meet Achav. He wasn't going to go meet Achav directly and give Achav the kavod of being the address of Eliyahu's appearance. So therefore he went to Ovadia, who at least has kavod for Nevi'im and has done his part to sustain the Nevi'im. He's the person that, that Eliyahu comes to. He's the person that Eliyahu meets up with. And the idea is that, uh, therefore, the assumption is that he knows the character of Ovadia, and that's why he approached him. In other words, he knows that, that, that this wasn't a chance meeting. He knows that Eliyahu came to him. So he knows, so he assumes that Eliyahu knows what kind of a person he is, and that's why Eliyahu would choose to address him and not to address Ahab directly. So he's saying, you know what a good guy I've been and what I've done for the Nevi'im. Why would you now put me in a compromising position uh, in front of my boss where uh, he's been looking for you everywhere. And now uh, if we if we come back and you're not here, then, then it's going to be on me. But you could see that. Yeah, I don't care why not just go straight to Ahab. I don't know why he doesn't. Well, um, okay. So what do you think? I think there's a, there's a negotiating tactic here. It makes a big difference if you're the one approaching or they're the one approaching. Like in sales, you're in a much better better situation when they come to you to buy from you with a show, whereas when you go into their store and try to sell to them. Right. So it's a position of uh, weakness. It's like it's a big selling point. It's like, right. Yeah, you, you don't want to get in a position of weakness. Right. It's a position of weakness when you approach. It's like, okay, I want to end the standoff. I'm going to come to you. Right? So, but he, so, but, but is, there, is there another reason? Is there another reason why maybe he, uh, he would talk to Ovadia, not to Achav? Does it send another message? Speaking to Eliyahu, to to, uh, to Ovadia instead of Achav is showing his disdain to a certain extent for Achav still. Meaning even, even when I'm coming to talk to Achav, I only want to relate to the person who is actually the, the individual who has some, uh, some level of kavod for the Nevi'im and has shown it. I don't want to relate directly to Achav. I'm gonna to go to uh, I'm gonna to go to Ovadia. I say if you if Achav wants to speak to me, you tell him I'm here and you come speak to me. Right. So it's a it's it's a, a direct connection to Achav is giving in the mind of Eliyahu too much kavod to Achav that the Navi would come to him and he hasn't earned that kavod. Ovadia 
earn the kavod, even though you could see that Eliyahu is a bit skeptical of the uh, of the uh, bona fides of uh, of Ovadia, and he calls him, you know, he calls Achav the master of uh, of Ovadia. But still, you could see that he's willing to engage with him, and he prefers engaging with him over engaging with Achav directly. That's clear, right? And that's in a way that's a kind of a that's showing that I'm not going to come to you directly. I'm going to communicate with those who are receptive to the message of the Navi. So he's, sorry, do you make anything of Ovadia's response being like very verbose? Very verbose? Like even like if you doubt it, he's still saying like, why yeah. do you want me to go? Like, like, it's like, okay, I get, I get what you're saying. Like, right. Five minutes of him saying, why are you asking me to do this? Right. Yeah, so what would you make of that, actually? What do you make of that? Out of nervousness? I don't know. Yeah? What's another possibility? You know what it reminds me of when I think of verbose people in Tanakh? It reminds me of the story of the girls that meet Shaul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember the girls that meet Shaul when he's coming to meet to look for Shmuel? And they're very, very verbose in how they describe how to find Shmuel, remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They give a long, long, long speech with all this detail. And it's like, how much detail do you need to repeat the same thing three times? <laughs> right? That's in, the, that's in the beginning of the book of Shmuel. And what do the Chazal say? Why did they do it? He's good looking. He was a very good looking guy and they like to spend more time talking to him. So they came up with... Uh, they were being extra verbose. So using that, right? Right, because they're flirting with him. So, so what's the, and, and in fact, you could see from that also the insight of Chazal that usually when, uh, when men and women meet by the water, there's like some romance going on, you know, but it didn't happen over there, but the girls were interested in, uh, in Sha'ul. But what, what do you learn from that? You learn from that sometimes a person's verbose because they want, inter they're showing a desire to interact with the person. And you could and and Eliyahu is extremely terse. He just says, "Ani, I am. Go tell your master Eliyahu is here." But it's almost like Obadia wants to cling to Eliyahu. He wants to engage with him. He's he's seeking to connect to Eliyahu because he recognizes the greatness of Eliyahu, even if Eliyahu is kind of looking at him with what we call kabdeu vechashdeu. He, he, he appreciates him, but he's not 100% sure that he trusts him. You know? It's like, it's like a frantic attempt to prove that he's good enough for Eliyahu to like, deal with him as many people who are friends. Yeah, yeah. He's desperate to want, he wants to be friends with him. He's like people who meet celebrities and then they go crazy and they start blabbering, you know, and try to get their number and try to get this. And, and, and so he, he's, he's trying, it seems, you know, that could be the answer. I think that's, a, I think what uh, Dan said is on point, you know, he's being very verbose maybe because he's relishing the opportunity to interact with this legendary Navi. He's look, it's like a, he's a groupie of Navi'im. He loves Navi'im. He's been taking care of Navi'im. So it's like, a, a you know, but it's like a group, like a rock band groupie who meets like, uh, I don't know, whoever that, who meets um, Steven Tyler or something like that. You know, I don't know. I'm trying to think of who is a, who is a, a legendary rock star who's still alive. I would say Alice Cooper, but only us old people would remember who he is. And even when I was young, he was already old. 
He's still really old. Do you know who that is? You know who is? Very old. He's really old now, but he was old when I was a kid. He was already old. So, um, but, uh, you know, he's a legendary, he's a legendary rock star. So uh, people who are into rock and really into that might recognize his name. So the point is, yeah, he, you know, he became a born again uh, Christian, by the way, which is really odd, but he did. Anyway, if you, so the point is, if you if you're a groupie of a certain thing and you meet someone who's like a legend in that uh, in that field, so you you get very excited. He's getting very excited because it, for all of the controversy surrounding Eliyahu, there's no question that he's a legend. He's a living legend. I mean, and now he has opportunity to interact with him. And what is the chut to interact with a living legend and 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 show that he's you know like. Uh, like Rabbi Levy, Rabbi Levy said, he's tripping over himself to show that, uh, you know, he deserves uh, some time, the time of day from Eliyahu when Eliyahu is not as, uh, he's not as excited to give the time of day to this individual. So um, you could see it, you know. Um, okay, so that's, uh, that's, that's a very good observation. Okay, go ahead. So your dollar is last. Uh, last response, he said, That's what he said. Same idea again. Yeah. And then Eliyahu's response, He swears to Hashem. He also said before, Hashem, Asher Amati Lefanav. That was his language before. Right? See, when, when a Navi says something like that, it carries a lot more weight than an ordinary person. <laughs> because Chai Hashem Asher Amati Lefanav, when you, what is, an, what is really a, an oath, really? If you think of what an oath is, when you make an oath, you're saying, if you swear to do something or you swear not to, you're setting that action equal with your belief in God. Right? You're saying... I swear, if you say, I swear in the name of God to do this, you're saying, if I don't do that, it's like, I don't believe in God. My commitment to doing it is as real as my belief in God, or my commitment to not doing this activity is as real as my belief in God. And if I were to violate this promise, it's like, I'm rejecting God. It's like, I'm denying God. So the real, that's why it's such a serious uh, sin to say a false oath, because you're setting something, you're, you're, you're establishing a certain action as the barometer, as the measure of your, uh, of your belief in God, of God's existence. So when a Navi says, he means it, right? He's saying the God that I stand before, that is his ultimate reality. So he, when, he, when he says, by the, as God lives, and you know what the Rambam says about you, I'm sure you guys already know, and right? Whenever it talks about a person, it always says, the Rambam says in uh, Torah, important thing just to notice that, for example, is by the life of Paro, right? And of course, whenever Yosef says something that he's not going to actually follow through with, he says because he doesn't care about that so much, right? But you never say Hashem, you always say Hashem. You never find in Tanakh anybody saying Chay Hashem. You always find people saying Chai Hashem because it means as Hashem lives, 
We don't refer to Hashem as having a life separate from Him. That's what the, the Rambam says in Yisodei HaTorah. If you said Chei Hashem, you'd be by the life of Hashem, as if Hashem has something called life, that He could have it or He could not have it. As opposed to Chai Hashem, as Hashem lives, by the light, meaning it's, it's a different sense, meaning as Hashem exists, in the same way that Hashem exists, I'm going to do this. It's as real as Hashem's existence that I'm going to do it. So, by the way, you know that there's a big controversy in Baruch She'amar and Yishtabach, whether you say Chai or Chai, right? Right, so... Uh, so we say chai, or our sidurim have chai, right? Yachir chaya olamim. Melech mishubach, right? Or at the end, melech el chaya olamim. It's interesting because uh, according to Rav, uh, Rav Kafich, you know, the, uh, the, the Rambam uh, master, he says, that is totally blasphemous, chaya olamim. He says, chai is right, Ashkenazim are right. He likes it better. He says, he says, according to the Rambam, it should be Chay. Why? Because Hashem, because when you're saying the life of Hashem, you say Chai Hashem. But when you're saying Hashem gives life to the world, you say Chay Ha'olamim. He gives, he's giving life to the world. He isn't the life of the world. Chai Ha'olamim. But anyway, interesting point. But not, but uh, in Tanakh, the point is in Tanakh, it's always Chai Hashem. If it's a person, and by the way, of course, in Tfilat B'nai Tzion, the real, the best, Sidur, it has Chei HaOlami. So just, just, you know, just to mention. Now, um, in the, uh, in the, uh, uh, so it's just, it's, it, you'll know that every time it says the life of Hashem, it says Chai Hashem. When it says uh, by the life of a person, Chei Paro, or, uh, you know, something like that. So, well, I, 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 I think in my luggage, I brought a Tfilat Benetzion, but I think it might be in my lift. I don't think it's here. I found one at the Kotel. <laughs> um, they have a Kotel, they have one at the Kotel, so, I, uh, so I'm okay if I need it. Okay, go ahead. Okay. What a different greeting. Huh. Right? Ovadiah is like Adoni Eliyahu, the great Eliyahu. And Achav says, You are the person who's destroying Israel. Are you the destroyer of Israel? So, very interesting. They don't deny that he's the person responsible for the drought. They believe that he's actually responsible for it. So the question is, what does that really mean? So they understand that it's, it's his. It, it's at his discretion that the that the drought was imposed, even though obviously it requires the cooperation of God to make that happen. He recognizes it was at Eliyahu's discretion that the drought was imposed, and therefore he's saying, "You're the Ocher Israel because you decided to do this." It's incredible that, that Achav recognizes that. Meaning a, a person a, a person who just didn't believe in the Nevi'im at all would say, this is an accident. This is just a, a bad situation that there's a drought. 
they wouldn't really think it was attributed to Eliyahu. That's already a from person to think that. They have to be a ma'amin to some extent to believe that Eliyahu actually had any role in it. Because the, the real apikoiris would say, uh, the, the Navi didn't have anything to do with this drought. So I don't believe in any of that hocus pocus. He believed uh, that he really caused it. Yeah, what were you going to say? Is he, is he therefore separating the idea that there's a connection between why the, the drought was brought upon? Yeah, seeming. So the, the, the thing is, he believes that Eliyahu really has the ability to bring about a drought, which suggests that he believes that the divine uh, uh, mission of Eliyahu is real. And yet he criticizes Eliyahu for imposing the drought, which, which rather, than, uh, rather than responding to the reason behind the drought. Meaning it's a, it's a strange position to be in. Because if you believe, if you believe that Eliyahu is really a divine messenger and a navi, and and he's an and he's uh, you know he he serves God with what he does, and therefore he has the ability to bring about a drought that's sustained for years. But at the same time, you have no interest in the reason behind the drought that he brought and how you could maybe remedy the situation. There's zero interest in that. It's just he looks at it like. Eliyahu had the power to curse us, right? It's just noteworthy that he believed he had any power at all. To me, it's interesting. You know, if you really wanted to be anti-Nevi'im, you would think that you would just assume that the drought was a total accident and had nothing to do with Eliyahu at all. Okay, so go on. Nice comeback. <laughs> now, what do they call it when the people used to do those uh, challenges where they diss each other? Yeah. And the response is your mama? Is like yeah, like this, where they would stand on the, they would say insults back to each other and who could come up with the best diss back and forth, you know? So, so he says, you're the okay. So, no, it's not me. You're the one with you and your father and you and, and, and your father's house because you you abandoned the mitzvot of Hashem and you followed the Baalim. Don't look at me. It's you causing it. So very interesting, like kind of a, a dilemma, because even as you're reading the story, who is really the who is the cause? Who is the cause of it? Right. Is the cause Achav because he has led the Jewish people in a direction of corruption that they deserve such a harsh punishment in the eyes of Eliyahu? Or is really the person that's to blame the, uh, the person who imposes the punishment? So that's, you know, that's what they're, uh, that's what they're vikuach. They have a machloket here. Uh, you know, it's like if the judge gives you a very harsh sentence, how is that your fault or is that the judge's fault? You know, you can't blame if the teacher uh, kicks you out of class. You could say the teacher flunked me. The teacher kicked me out of class. Well, what behavior did you uh, brought that about? Right. So it's a, it's a good it's a dispute between the two. Now, what happens? Right. So he tells him he gives him an order. He tells him, you want me to release you from this drought? 
okay, here's the deal. Bring all of the hundreds of Nevi'ah Baal and Nevi'ah Asherah who are guests in your wife's table. Notice he says, Shulchan Izevel. He doesn't say Shulchanecha. Right? So, so it, it, that again, like, sort of goes back to what we saw about Achav before. That Achav is a bit of a tormented soul. He does, he's not fully behind, he's, he's the lady doth protest too much guy. He's trying to go so far in the direction of the Baal and the Asherah, promoting it almost to prove himself to his wife or to the, to the surrounding nations that he is a Hasid of the Baal. But deep down inside, he, he's not 100% okay with it. So he has to broad, he's the person who has to go to the fullest extreme of demonstrating his, uh, his Baal fervor precisely because actually he's very insecure about it and he's conflicted about it. And so he, that's why, you know, like we said, that the, the Chazal say he wrote on the gates of Shomron, I'm a kofer belohei Israel, and I, I want no, no chilek in the God of Israel. Why would, uh, why would he have to write that on the gates of Shomron? Only a person who's really insecure about their, uh, about their position needs to write things on the wall about what they, that they reject God. A person who's secure in the rejection of God just doesn't say anything. He just won't say anything. But the person who is, uh, who is uh, conflicted has to, has to make up the biggest announcement. And like, uh, you know, the, 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 like I mentioned, the Jews who converted to Christianity had to be the biggest persecutors of their fellow Jews because they had to show how much they weren't Jewish. It was, it, it was very important to them to be extra not Jewish. You know, or like uh, like Jackie Mason said, you know, people would complain about his humor and they would and he said they would complain that he was too Jewish with his humor. He said, but who would complain about it? The most Jewish sounding Jewish looking audience members would come and say, why do you have to be so Jewish? You know, it's like they're trying to get away with they're trying to get away from it. So he's reminding them, Mazkeret Avon, you know, he doesn't want it. So the um, so that, that's so Achav, you see, he himself is not dining with the Nivea Habal. He doesn't have any relationship with the Nivea Habal. He doesn't have any relationship with the Nivea Asherah, really. But he's trying to get away from his Judaism. And I'm I, I I would never know, but I would I would still, like I said before, I would guess I would guess that he looked the other way when Ovadia was providing for those Nivea'im in the in the in the caves. I feel like Ovadia was a close uh, confidant of Achav and Achav either knew about it or at the very least uh, either openly knew about it or at the very least had a, had a, you know, knew had plausible deniability and pretended not to know about it because uh, you could see that they're close, that, that Ovadia and Achav are close and that, Ovadia, and that Achav himself has no relationship with the Nevi'e Habal. And we know that in the aftermath of the Hara Carmel thing, Achav runs home to tell his wife how amazing Eliyahu is, which she does not really uh, agree with. But um, but he but he's very excited to tell her as if what, as if this is what he kind of thought might happen all along, and this is what he kind of doesn't mind that it happened because it would alleviate a great sense of conflict if he could just listen to Eliyahu. So he's a tormented soul, poor Achav. Okay, now, so yeah, what did you want to say? No, it's interesting the extent to which 
I have it on my clothes because they're going on a scavenger hunt for grass. <laughs> yeah. And it says, you and me, let's go and split up. Yes, it's the two of them. Like, where are the rest of his servants? Like, yeah, it's like, they're obviously like, they have like a friendship almost. Yeah, and what happens in Tanakh when you have a friendship between a person who has your Shamayim and a person who does not, is that the, that's an opportunity for the, the friend who is the Yurei Shamayim to influence and to have the ear of the person who is not the Yurei Shamayim. And so it's easy, we, all, we always have to remember that the Tanakh gives you only snippets of conversations and interactions among people. There's a good chance that Ovadia has been talking to Ahav, trying to soften him up, trying to let him see other side of things. You know, if you have such a good friend that's so religious and so devoted, you have to think, how could Ahav tolerate such a religious devoted friend being totally anti-Judaism that he was, supposedly, allegedly was? It's not really reasonable to think that. It's not really reasonable to think that they would have such a close friendship and, and not once would Ovadia try to prevail upon Achav, give him a little Dvar Torah over coffee, tell him about the parashah, whatever. You know, somehow try to, to, to give him uh, some ideas. So that might have actually, we, we don't know for sure, but that may very well have prepared uh, the way for this meeting between Achav and Eliyahu, that Achav is... Uh, primed, maybe to listen, maybe to find, you know, he obviously has an edge to the way he interacts with Eliyahu, but he also might be receptive to the message because of the friendship that he had with Ovadia. And maybe that tells us, I don't know, but maybe that tells us that Ovadia's concept of infiltrating the administration of Achav Litoelet uh, was not such a bad idea because he actually was able to get the ear of Ahav and have a little influence maybe on how he thought about religious issues in his kingdom. It's very possible. You see that when David Melech ran away to, uh, and, and stayed with the Plishtim, that all of a sudden the king of the Plishtim starts talking about Hashem. You know, where did he get that idea from? Obviously, David Melech told him a few divrei Torah over Sudash Lishit, invited him to a little Oneg Shabbat, a little tish at the Rebbe's house, who knows? Some way or another, a person who has Avat Hashem cannot really uh, hold back from sharing their passion with other people and is going to want to uh, share it with them. And, and that's what happens. So, okay. So what happens? So he tells them to make the showdown at Har Karmel. We know what, how it goes, but let's read it. Go ahead. What he didn't say anything to him when he said that. How long are you going to be hopping on the two sides of the fence? If Hashem is the God, follow him. Right? How can you straddle both sides? They're contradictory. You can't believe in Hashem and in the Baal, which means what? The Jews weren't fully worshiping the Baal. The Jews were, they had something called syncretism. They were worshiping the Baal and worshiping Hashem at the same time. They didn't fully abandon worship of Hashem. They kind of blended um, worship of the Baal with the worship of Hashem. Because you could see that's what he's calling them out on. But they're not willing to take a position on either way. Nobody says anything. But doesn't he say something remarkable there? 
He says, Imabal, right? Imabal, if the Baal is God, so uh, what's holding you back? Go with him. That's a strange thing for a Navi of Hashem to say. Right? You could say, if you believe Hashem is God, follow him. And if you believe the Baal is God, you're, you're a fool. You're, you're going to be destroyed. What, you, you would think you would say, if you believe in Hashem, very good. If you believe in the Baal, you're going to be destroyed because the Baal is nothing and you're crazy. Why does he say, if the Baal is God, follow him? What is he saying? He's saying, at least be honest. At least be yeah. honest. In fact, you're worshiping both means you're not worshiping either. Right. So, so choose. Do, do, do a worship. Do yourself a favor and choose. Like, be a man of truth. Right. And, right. And, and the thing is, that when a person that when a person does something like what they were doing, they're not taking a position. When you don't take a position and you're wishy-washy, it, it, like you said, you can't even a person, a person who's a genuine Baal worshiper is better than a person who divides their loyalties. Because a person who divides their loyalties doesn't stand for anything. Right. But I mean, I think the people kind of followed the same derech as Achav. I don't think they were wholesale 100% Baal worshippers, and they definitely weren't wholesale 100% Hashem worshippers. I think that they were taking a bit from each. Like, uh, you know, assimilated Jews in America. They do a little bit of Christmas, and a little bit of Hanukkah, and a little bit of Pesach, and a little bit of New Year's, and whatever. They mix it around. So the uh, so in the, um, in, this, in the framework, what he's saying is, it's impossible to reason with someone who doesn't even take a position on the issue, right? You have to have a principle. What, what, where do you stand? Tell me where you stand, okay? Yeah, you have to choose a side. And, uh, and they don't answer, meaning they're not willing to declare a loyalty to one or the other. They're not willing to take a position on who is God. So what happens now? <laughs> He doesn't want to let the secret out, obviously. He's not, you know. He knows that there are there are a hundred Naveem hiding out there. He's not gonna he's not gonna blow their cover. Unless he's not a Navi. That, that's, that, that, that was the question. We don't know if he's a Navi or not. Okay. Okay, so, so he says, uh, 23, it says, Right. So they're going to make parallel korbanot and see which one is the real one, right? Don't put fire on it. Put them on. Yeah. They're not going to put fire, just wood, and see which God can light the fire. That's the test. So everyone agrees to the challenge. What is this reminiscent of a little bit? Exactly. I was just thinking, right? Whichever, whichever fire, whichever pan of fire uh, is lit up by Hashem, that's the Hu HaKadosh. 
they, he'll, he's obviously the Kohen. So whichever Avodah is... What I understand in most cases is that like, the person setting up the scene is one of the sides. It's like, what's not fair? Like, why doesn't... Uh, why don't the Nidia Baal set the seed and say, oh, well, this is what we're going to do? It's like Eliyahu is saying, this is what you're going to do and that seems right. Same with Moshe, with with right. Barak, This is what we're going to do. We're going to take these Nachot and, 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 they, and they follow along. They agree like, to it. They agree to it. Seemingly, they, they they nurtured a hope that they were going to win, so they uh, they took the deal. They said, "Okay, look, you're making a point. You know, they, they said, look, 'Look, you're making a point. Objective reality is that only one of these two possibilities is true, since the belief in Hashem precludes the belief in other gods.' Okay, so we understand that there must be an objective truth, either we're right or wrong." And that's a test to determine the objective truth. And because we are the, you know, we, we we're gonna we're gonna go through the test. We're gonna we're gonna try. It. Yeah. I think the one of the lessons, perhaps, from this story and Moshe's story, is the human ability to self-deceive. Yeah. yeah. It's like it's like these people get they convince themselves to such a degree in their in their in their false beliefs that they they're convinced they they really do believe what they believe at at a certain point. You know, like it starts off like they're doing it for personal gain or whatever. But if they do it long enough, it gets to the point where they actually believe in the power of it. You know? Yeah, they become like French. Yeah, okay. it's very true. And then look what happens. Okay, so what happens? On that point, on that point, I don't necessarily think that they they believe that they were wins. I just think that they, they kind of had no choice after this. What are they going to say? Like, no, we don't want to, like, it's, it's like embarrassing for them to say no. Right, it's a bouchard that they can't, what, you you won't subject your beliefs to a verification? Right, they're going to say, no, sorry, we can't win this battle. We're not doing it. Like, it's embarrassing. They have to say yes. So, like, they might know that they're screwed anyways. And they're like, what are we going to do? We have to say yes. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah, it's a, it's a no-win situation because because if they decline the test, they're basically admitting that they're not uh, that they that they lost. Yeah, it's true. Once what are they gonna do? Say say no to challenge? They have to say yes. No, they're gonna say no, they're gonna lose. What are they gonna say? What do you mean? They're at a point where their lives are in danger. They could admit that they're wrong and start serving God, but they don't. By the way, they're confident they can still win. Yeah, I hear. But I think he's right. I think Dan is right that, you know, once you put down a challenge like that, if I'm not willing to take the challenge, I'm basically admitting that I'm wrong. You have to at least be willing to. That's the point. These people, if they admit that they're wrong, their lives are fine. But if they they go through it, then their lives are, they're going to die. And they know that, you know, or at least in Moshe's thing, they probably knew that. Well, he never said, well, in Moshe's thing, he never warned them they were going to die. It actually sounded like just the one who was the real Kohen would have their thing light up. And then Hashem decided to take it to the next level and uh, and do that. Here also, Eliyahu doesn't say, I'm going to kill you if you're in the Nivei Habal. He just says, oh, whichever one ca- catches on fire, that's the real one. And they say, oh, yeah, that's a good test. And then as soon as they fail the test, he says, let's kill them. It's, after, it's an afterthought. I still think the point about self-deception is true. I, I think you're. I, think you're I still right. think you're right. I think you're right about the self-deception thing. I, I and I and I think it's. I think it's very true with regard to religion. People, people believe all. Well, you know, people selectively uh, uh, filter information to support their uh, pre-existing beliefs, especially in in matters of faith. That's definitely true. No question. Okay, Rabbi, Rabbi. Yeah. I just read. 
thing on the note here. It said that a bar, and it says that. If you notice, the, the Am answered, okay, do it. But the Nivim didn't say, let's do it. They were scared to say, oh, oh that's, that's interesting. Yeah, Barbanel is good. Yeah, that's a good yeah. point. Meaning, they know that they can't actually do that. <laughs> right, and I mean, I mean, right, but but guys, the challenge actually, if you think about it, the challenge of the the challenge was not presented to the Nevi'ayabal. The challenge was presented to the people, because. Because Eliyahu said, you guys are on both sides of the fence. He wasn't talking about the Nevi'eh about, they're only on one side of the fence. He was talking to the people, right? And they're saying, whichever, whichever Navi is able to pull this off, I'll follow them. That's true, that's true. You know? So, but, but no, but it's a very good observation of the Abarbanel. It fits in with the text perfectly because the challenge was really to the people. It wasn't to the... The Abarbanel is an excellent commentary. The only def def defect of the Abarbanel's commentary is that it's too long. It's, a, it's, re it's really unfortunate because he's one of the best Pirushim in terms of reading, in terms of careful reading of the text. It's almost to the level of a modern uh, Pirush. It's so good, but it's so long that most people are just overwhelmed. They can't, uh, they can't read through it. It's too long. It's a shame. It's a shame. It's so good. Anyway, somebody once asked me if I was on a desert island and I could only bring one peush of the Torah with me, what would I bring? And I said the Barbanel for sure. Because first of all, it'll keep, help me pass the time because it's so long, but that's not the reason. No, no because he, he brings every other perush. He brings every other perush and his critique or agreement with every other perush that exists. So it's really like bringing all of the perushim together. Anyway, so yeah, so go ahead. What happens now? Okay, so okay. What a nice, what a respectful guy. All of a sudden, Eliyahu and Navi became such a Derch Eretz type of guy. Amazing. <laughs> Was there like a point in him saying this? Of course. Why? Eliyahu knows 1,000% that they're going to lose. He's humoring them. There's zero, there is zero possibility in the mind of Eliyahu that they are going to be successful in this challenge. So therefore, he's just, he's being a showman. Oh, you know, you go first, I'll defer to you. You are the majority, you go first. He also wants the effect of his miracle happening at the end, because then he's going to capitalize on that to turn the people against the Nevi'eh about. And he wouldn't be able to do that if his went first. In other yeah, words, you could, argue, you could argue that Eliyahu Navi usually would be the uncompromising guy who would say, Hashem is going to be second and the Baal is going to be first. No way. Hashem has to go first. But that wouldn't fit in with the plan, which is to turn public opinion in a very dramatic way against the Nevi'eh Haba. Because what, what basically right now the way that it's perceived is that Eliyahu is responsible with his magic hocus pocus for this drought that everyone is suffering. But if Eliyahu shows them that actually they've been misled by all of these Nevi'eh Habal, then, then all of a sudden the problem, the responsibility for all the suffering is on the Nevi'eh Habal. 
because they've been misleading everybody down the path of worshiping the Baal, and they're the cause of the uh, absence of the rain. And in the moment that he basically gets all the anger of the people and frustration that normally would have been directed at him and, ch- and immediately channels it and aims it at the Nevi'ah Baal, who have misled and manipulated the people and basically are fully responsible for the uh, for everything that's happened. Then it's it's a masterful uh, masterful strategy. Okay, so 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 he tells them, you guys go first. You're the majority. All that. Okay. That I don't recall that from slichot. <laughs> we have a lot of aninos, but not that one. <laughs> they even jumped on the mizbeach. They stepped on and jumped on it. There's a there's a couple of, uh, of times we're mentioning the word the, the shoresh pasach. Yeah. Right. It's, it's kind of bringing us to, to the idea of now here comes redemption, right? Like. Yeah, I think that's a really good observation. Yeah, and and uh, and Pesach in particular is a break with Avodah Zarah, right? Because uh, Pesach is uh, is the rejection of Avodah Zarah. You also find that Gidon, who breaks his father's altar to uh, also to Baal, does it, and it says it was on Pesach. Also, it says that the uh, that the events that that he broke the altar of his father. And he had his his vision was on Pesach, and he said to the to the Malach, it spoke to him, "Oh, where are all the wonders that we heard about? That you know, why are we suffering so much?" And it says, "Where did he hear about the wonders at the Seder the night before from his father, who meanwhile has a Baal shrine on his property, but is um, is is uh, having a Seder of Pesach?" So the um, so he, it's uh, and and then it says that you know when he saw that vision of the, when the guy's telling the dream if you remember he's telling a dream about the barley rolling in the camp and they said it's his own killing everyone that that's the barley of the uh, korbana omer you know so but 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 the idea is that because he was called Yerubal because he rejected Avodah Zarah it happened Davka on Pesach and when when Chizkiyahu and uh, Yoshiahu re commit the Jews to um, to serve God after periods of religious neglect because Yoshiao came after uh, after Menashe and Amon and um, and uh, Chizkiyahu came after Achaz, long periods of rejection of Judaism, the holiday that they organized everybody around celebrating to reaffirm their Judaism was Pesach because it's the holiday of the rejection of Avodah Zorah. So yeah, the, 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 I'm sure you're right that uh, I didn't notice it, but now that you pointed out the 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 verb pasach for sure would be a uh, would be a, probably an allusion to that I would guess, and and this uh, is going to hopefully renew a uh, some kind of a uh, relationship with God or or he hopes. That light wasn't there on the Sukkot? Yeah, when when were the people gathered? Right. So so the theme the theme in Tanakh. Uh, or davar, the, the principle is that whenever the whenever the Jews are emerging from a period of involvement in Avodah Zarat to become Jewish again, such as in the time of Chizkiyahu and Yoshiahu, uh, it's it's done through a Chag HaPesach, 
because that's the rejection of Avodah Zorah. But whenever the Yishuv of the Jewish people in Eretz Yisrael is being, is being um, uh, reconstituted uh, and, uh, and solidified, so then it's Sukkot. So that's why the Beta Mikdash that symbolizes the final rest, the Menucha and the Nachala in Israel is on Sukkot. And that's why Ezra and Nehemiah, they weren't coming after a period of Avodah Zorah, but they were coming after a period of non-Yishuv in Eretz Yisrael and resettling Eretz Yisrael. So the big holiday for them was the holiday of Sukkot. That's why. Yeah. Okay, so, so let's see what happens next. He's making fun of them. You know, it's you 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 would think that Eliyahu would be a humorless kind of a guy. Yeah. You know? Well, he, was, he, he was while he's dealing with, with like individuals. You know, yeah. some of these like, speakers, like, like you speak to kind of an individual and they're like so yeah. boring. When they get on stage, it's like a whole new personality that's comes out. Yeah. That's a yeah. performer. Yeah. He's a performer, but also I think because he's being sarc it's sarcastic, it's sarcastic humor. It's not like uh it's not belly laugh humor, you know. He's uh he's saying to them, Oh, maybe he has a meeting. Maybe you need to scream louder because you know he's a god after all, you know. Uh maybe he's uh, maybe he's in a meeting or he's uh, he's fighting a war, he's seeing, you know, he he's busy uh or he's in a meeting, so you have to be louder. Right. Um, and so uh and, and, and he's taking a nap. It could be that he's taking a nap, and uh, if you're not loud, he's not going to wake up. Right. So he's he's making fun of them. Oh, what was their name? What's the name of that group again? Yeah, I forgot the name of that group. They're the very loud group. Yeah. Right, uh, right. That that was a one rabbi though, but he was doing his own thing. But the uh, but that group was screaming really loud. The group of Hasidim that they scream. Out. But they're known for that apparently everywhere they do that, not just in the Kotel. You know, it's interesting because you know, like for example, like uh, you're supposed to. It's supposed to be, you know, v'kola lo yishamea. You know, you're supposed to be able to hear yourself pray, but other people are not supposed to hear you pray. And actually, uh, in the Zohar, it's really uh, uh, strict about not nobody should be able to hear you pray. So it's interesting that that, that they don't they're not concerned with that. Like the Beit Yosef brings that in uh, brings that in a couple of places, but the um, but the uh, but they're obviously not concerned with that. Anyway, go ahead. That's like the Muslims in Iran. You know where they uh, where they wound themselves. You know, that's a it's a it's a they would they they, they, they were cutting themselves with swords and spears until blood spilled because that was a way they sacrificed their own blood to their god as a way to get his attention. Right, that's the concept. And that's why it says Lotit go de do. The pshat of Lotit go de do, Velotasimu Kochabene Nechem Lamet, 
in the Torah is that it was a type of uh, idolatrous practice of worship, that they would cut themselves and wound themselves for their God. Or, or in mourning, they would cut themselves and wound themselves, right? Isn't that baldness? Huh? Yeah, that's it. the Torah talks about two things: bolding yourself and wounding yourself. But you see that that Eov did. It said that he bolded himself when his uh, when he was mourning. So it's, it was a it was a practice in the ancient world of mourning. But the, it also could be a type of a religious practice because you're you're sacrificing your own blood or your hair to the god by wounding yourself by damaging your body. It's like a, a gift to the god. It's like a type of living human sacrifice, you know? But, uh, okay, it's, it, the point is it's crazy and primitive and, uh, and you know, it's, uh, it's showing the extent of the primitivism of the uh, Nevi'e Habal and the desperation. And meanwhile, Eliyahu is just calmly standing there and poking fun at these people that he sees as a bunch of clowns, okay? Okay. Right. Just in case you were concerned about the possibility that there might be, right? That's it. There was no answer. By the way, means that they were spe- like what they what the Christians call speaking in tongues. They were, you know, they were going into trances and saying all kinds of mumbo jumbo spells and things like that. That's what it means. Okay. 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 Right. Um, Acting crazy, right? Especially the second time. Right. Yeah. The first time he Second time yeah. when he, where he disrobes and everything, he he was just acting in a trance. Right. There's the talk there also. There's one in between them. Yeah. Where he's sitting in the palace and he's being in there. Where he's sitting in the home and he's being in there. Right, he starts speaking, starts speaking nonsense. Yeah. Which is funny that that term is used for both both the highest form of speech of Nevoah and also a person who's speaking nonsense. <laughs> it's, a, it's a funny equivocation to use that, but you know, some people say that the word Nevoah comes from the word Nibs Fatayim, you know, so it's like uh, expression of the lips, which could go either way, I guess. Yeah, okay. Also, like, there's a very fine line between what constitutes the lie and what's crazy. Well, you know, it says that, 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 doesn't it say in the Gemara that the spirit of Nevoah was given to the Shotim? You know? Yeah. So there you go. So, okay. Yeah, keep going. What does that mean? Very strange, right? What Mizbah Hashem Eros? There was no Mizbah in Harak Carmel. <laughs> Why not? What does that mean? So either it could mean that there was actually a previous Mizbeach there that was destroyed or neglected during the times of Aldi Abad could be, but still, any Mizbeach, any Mizbeach in Malchut Israel is going to be illegal. So it's not like uh, it would be a genuine uh, Mizbeach. Bye-bye. 
Honestly, that idea, it's like the Isur of Bamot during the time of Metamitash and Shiloh and things like that. It's, it's like not terribly consistent. Like if you really read the Tanakh from Yoshua to Lehev of Melachim, you can find examples where it's very difficult to say that, that it was just obviously there are no Mibahot. Like in all of the Shofetim, you'd have... Yeah, but that was, during, that was during the Tkufa of Heter Everybody agrees that there was a period of Heter Abamot from the time, from the time that the Jews came to Eretz Israel until the building of Shiloh. During the period of Shiloh, they weren't allowed to have Bamot. And then, and then they were allowed to have Bamot after Shiloh was destroyed until the Beit HaMikdash was built. So during the times of Shoftim, they were allowed to have Bamot. Oh, there was one that we did with my class in the mornings that yeah. it was during the period of Shiloh and there was still a... There was still a they still did a yeah. really. And it's like the reason I'm saying this is because no, because during the times like of Shmuel, Shiloh was destroyed. What? During the times of Shmuel, Shiloh. Okay, find the source. I'd like to see. Um, I mean, I hear you. The, the Torah in Dvarim is very clear on centralizing the place of worship, right, and not having uh, multiple places of worship. So exactly how that played out at certain periods of history. The Torah Shebaal Peh comes along and says, well, Shiloh time and Yerushalayim time, there were no Bamot allowed, but other times there were. And um, of course, there are those that, I mean, okay, let's leave it at that. But the, the major issue in Sefer Malachim, or one of the major issues of Sefer Malachim is that all the kings are, uh, even the kings that were good, it will say, bamot lo saru. Right? It always says that. That the uh, that even though the king was good, he didn't get rid of the bamot except for Chizkiyahu and uh, Yoshiahu. But otherwise, bamot were rampant, um, and and they were and people were very attached to their bamot. They didn't want to let them go. I get I get the impression that 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 we while we say it was already during Shiloh and I think even Gimbal that they didn't have bamot, but. But really, from the Tanakh's perspective, it's more a thing of the Beit Hamikdash. Yeah, it, it's more after the time of Shemuel, not the time before that. It's like I, I need to. I'll, I'll find it for you. But we found examples where it's like clearly this person is bringing a korban, and it's during the time of Shemuel. But I, I agree with you that from the Tanakh, it's only clear that it was an issue after the time of Shemuel. I agree with you. I, I, you, you would. Torah Shabal Pes says that it was an issue during the times of Shiloh. Uh, but I agree that from the text of Tanakh, there's no indication that they had a concern of Bamot except after the Beit HaMikdash was built. I agree. That's definitely true. Um, no question. I mean, in terms of Shutoshel Mikra, that's right. Um, so, okay, go ahead. Yeah, so what does it mean? They healed the, mizbeh, the destroyed Mizbeach of Hashem. Okay, so Rashi says, Bana Mizbeach. In other words, he was saying, I want you to remember because the idea of a valid Mizbeach Lashem had been forgotten from the Northern Kingdom and he was restoring it in their minds. Meaning he constructed the Mizbeach and he healed it in their minds. He restored to their minds the idea of a Mizbeach Lashem. Not that he restored, that there was a Mizbeach Lashem there before and he repaired it, but that actually it was a Mizbeach Lashem in their minds that they had forgotten about the concept 
and he was bringing the concept back. Okay, that's that's what Rashi says. Shaya harus v'nivgar u'batel shemo v'hazkarato. They didn't have an idea of a mizbeach l'shem. It was lost, and he was restoring that. Okay. What does the Radak say? You're the Radak man. First of all, I said that, that there was a Mizbeach that was there before. Right, right, which is possible reading of it too, yeah. Where's the Midrash that Shaul built one? Oh, right, yeah. And then that they destroyed it in the times of the Arabans, Agalim, they destroyed it, and now he's rebuilding it. Oh, so he restored a previous one. Yeah. Oh, that's okay. So, so that would take it literally by your apet, Mizbach Hashem Right. But you also bring at the end of it that. Mm-hmm. It means like that's a more like that's that's already pre pre uh uh you know uh, foreshadowing the conclusion basically. Yeah, yeah, that's like more I think. But. Yeah, so that's interesting though that there could have actually been a mizbech there. Either way, it's a very poetic and. Uh, almost like unusual uh, idea, like the way that it's worded, right? It doesn't just say Eliyahu um, told the people to come forward and he built the Mizbeach. It uses this language, he healed the broken Mizbeach. It's like, uh, it's a very unusual way to express it. And he said, I'll something interesting, that he had, they had created both altars, Eliyahu and the Yibal, and Yibal made an excuse that your altar is uh, destroying our ability to connect to our God, they destroyed his Baal. They destroyed his art altar. Oh, he had to destroy and rebuild it, you mean? Oh, interesting, interesting. Either way, it's an unusual pasuk that requires explanation. And it could be one, you know, it could be, but you know, it's 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 going beyond the, the immediate text, but especially the way Rashi says it, that he was trying to bring back to their minds the idea of a Mizbeach Lashem, that he, that he didn't just go ahead and do his Avodah, but he said something or he spoke about the significance of what he was about to do before he did it in order to give them a certain message and understanding of what he was doing. That seems to be like what Rashi is hinting at, because Rashi is saying he rebuilt in their hearts the idea of a Mizbech Lashem. Maybe he tried to convey to them some message about the meaning of what he was doing, why it was important, and that there was more to it than just the physical de- demonstration. And I like that idea because um, I like that kind of idea because it would be very superficial, maybe, of Eliyahu just to accept, expect to capture the hearts of the people based on a, a on on a, a plain miracle, just a just the physical miracle of the fire, without any new understanding behind it at all. That would be, uh, you know, that 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 would that would be seem to be naive for somebody like Eliyahu to think that uh, that just a, de- a, a a fire coming down from the sky is going to completely change the outlook of these people without any um, preparatory remarks from Eliyahu about the significance of what he was doing. So that seems to be like what Rashi is saying, maybe, that he gave them some kind of a 
message together with the building of the Mizbech. Maybe as he was putting, setting it up, he was saying something about it or who knows what, which wouldn't have violated the rules of the game because obviously speaking doesn't affect fire coming down from heaven. You know, he could say whatever he wanted while he's putting it together. Okay, so go ahead. Look at all this beautiful poetry here that seems out of place. Right? He takes these 12 stones that represent the 12 tribes of Israel that Hashem said about them, Yisrael Yeshemecha. You know, that, that, uh, that, that in, he's reminding them of who they are. He's reminding them of their history. He's reminding them of the relationship between Hashem and the Avot and, and, and their identity as, as descendants of Yaakov, who is called Yisrael. And, and, and the, you know, he's bringing to, I feel like that fits so nicely with that Rashi that he maybe said something to restore, to recall to them the idea of the Mizbech Lashem. In other words, he's doing these poetic actions to remind the Jewish people who are in attendance who they are, where they came from, what their roots are, you know? Because otherwise, why do you have to mention that? That he brings 12 rocks to remind that why does a Navi say that? I would think probably Eliyahu said that to them. Meaning, why would the Navi just say such a strange poetic thing? Oh, these are 12 stones for the 12 tribes of Israel that, that the word of Hashem was, Yisrael should be your name. Right? Well, uh, wait, Rabbi, Rabbi, you read this as someone other than Eliyahu saying this? No, no. I'm saying, I think that maybe... Um, no, because it's just saying that Eli it says that Eliyahu picked up the rocks and put them there, and they represent the Shifte Israel. Right? Because it says that the word of Hashem was to Yaakov saying Yisrael Yeshemecha. Why is it saying such a long thing? We know who Yaakov is, we know who Yisrael is, we know what the 12 tribes are, but it could be the there's a second tribe right now. True, but I'm saying there's a like, like, saying like should be one. The reason why there's this issue with Baal is because we're not one under Hashem. Right. We're not, we're not twelve tribes. Right. He's right, but what I'm suggesting is a little bit that even though the text just describes him as putting the rocks physically around the Mizbeach, the fact that it then gives you this poetic thing about, oh, to remind you of the 12 Shiftei Yaakov, who was told by the word of Hashem that he should be called Yisrael, which is the name of the people, the name of the nation, and the Malchut is called Malchut Yisrael. I can't imagine that Eliyahu thought by putting 12 stones, he was going to remind the people of that. It's possible that he also said that. In other words, he said to them, I'm doing this because Yisrael is represented by these 12 tribes in the relationship with Hashem that they had historically from the times of the Avot. Maybe he said that, actually, you know? Okay, go ahead. Right. So he made like a, what do you call it? A trench, right? Around the Mizbeach. Like a moat. Right. Right. It, it describes a lot of the detail in the process. 
ואני אומר מילאו ארבעה חדים מים ויצאו על העולה ועל העצים ואני אומר שלו וישלשו וישלשו And now he's pouring water all over it to show that there's no tricks here, you know? There's no hocus pocus. There's no hidden flint under there or hidden, you know, flame that he snuck under there that he's going to try to pull some fast one on them that they didn't notice, right? Because he poured water all over it three times. And then, you allowed them rashi says you allowed them to turn away from you Right? And he says anenu twice, right? Aneni Hashem aneni. Just like when we say anenu anenu, that's where they get it from. Right? Yeah, so notice that uh, he gives this Tfilah, this tefillah is said is said out loud. Obviously, this tefillah is said for the people to hear it. So everybody hears Eliyahu saying these words: "Hashem, God of Israel, I want everyone to know that you are the only God in Israel, and I am your servant. And by your word, I have done all of this. Meaning that I brought this. The, the Farshim say that it means that I that I went ahead and I uh, I brought this." Um, Uh, uh, these korbanot, according to your word, even though I'm uh, bending the rules of uh, offering outside the the uh, offering outside Yerushalayim, um, and that's that's what the Chazal say. The Radak, I think, says what he says that uh, all the nisim that I do are done by the word of Hashem, not by any kind of a magic thing, right? And that Aneni Hashem Aneni v'yedu ha'amazeh ki ata Hashem Elohim. You gave them the free choice to turn away from you. Okay? So that's the, uh, that's the and, and therefore what? And therefore when they see this demonstration, hopefully they'll exercise the free choice to go in the right direction. Right? That's the, that's the hope. But you see how he sets up this whole thing as a remez to the Shiftei Israel and to the history of Israel and to the identity of Israel and the God of Israel is the only God And now he's about to, uh, we're about to see the results, okay? Rabbi, what is uh, Yagon saying in Radak that for that last part, that you will turn their hearts back around by answering me now? Let me see. Right, meaning, meaning um, if you, uh, if you, if, that through doing this miracle, you are going to turn their hearts back around in the right direction. Meaning it's not talking, it's not talking about their current state where they turned away from God and saying, Hashem, you allowed that to happen. It's talking about the future state that because you're going to intervene and make this miracle, you're going to turn their heart in the right direction. Right, it's future, you're saying. Yeah. 
Instead of launching this, right? Don't do it for me. Do it because then they will think for you. So, but the Paul Eshem. It even like uh, singed the water, even like evaporated some of the water, I guess. <laughs> right. And that's, of course, where we get that from, right? In the tefillah. Yeah. And the uh, one interpretation is it's just lechazek to say to emphasize, and the other one is to say no. Hashem is Hashem is Elohim, and no one else is Hashem Elohim. And by saying it twice, you're saying you know lehotzi the Baal, you know that he's not right. So it's a it's both an a, an acknowledgement of Hashem as well as a rejection. Of, uh, of the idolatry. And at this point, because Eliyahu set this up as a test of who the real Navi is and who has really been the one who's been seeking to restore, to, to serve the Jewish people, who is really an authentic Navi who seeks to benefit the Jewish people, he ties it all into the history and identity of Israel, which is really fascinating. And, uh, and when this happens, now, imagine these people have been starving and have been suffering and have been told for the last three years that Eliyahu is a charlatan, Eliyahu is the bad guy, he's doing magic or whatever hocus pocus to withhold the rain, but it's totally because of his own, uh, his own uh, you know, hatred of the Baal. And we, the Baal worshippers, are suffering and our Nevi'im are telling us, you know, whatever this and that. All of a sudden, in this moment, they realize that the Baal worshippers are all a bunch of, uh, uh, are the ones who are the real uh, charlatans who have been harming them and misleading them all along. All that anger about the drought, all of that resentment, all of that frustration that had been directed towards Eliyahu up till now is going to be now directed towards the Nevi'eh Habal who, uh, who brought them to this point and, and they realize that they're the cause of the suffering. The Nivea Bal are the cause of the suffering, not Eliyahu. So what happens? Hey, Rabbi. Yeah. How does, how does Rambam explain miracles like this to this extent? It's a miracle. Like, but he goes so he goes so far to like explain like oh like Ruach Kadim, like split this, like all that stuff, like you know, like yeah, but the Torah says Ruach Kadim. Doesn't it? So he'll, so he'll just say it's just they had power to do miracles. The Rambam will say that the that the the uh, well, first of all, the Rambam brings the words of Chazal that the, the Chazal say that every miracle was pre-programmed into Maaseh Bereshit, and he says in the, he says both in the uh, he says in the uh, in Perkei Avot actually in the commentary Perkei Avot when it talks about the things that were created Ben Ashmashot, and he also says in the Morayin Avochim. He says, look at how great Chazal were, that they didn't want to attribute any breaking of the laws of nature to God. They wanted nature to be perfect and God's will to be perfect. And therefore they said that even miracles that are going to happen in the future are, predest are pre-programmed into nature. But the Rambam actually doesn't think that that's uh, correct. 
He doesn't think that the, pro, that the miracles are pre-programmed. He thinks they're violations of the laws of nature, but obviously God knew in advance what they would take place. But he thinks that they were, they're actually violations of the laws of nature, not somehow a feedback loop or a, uh, you know, programmed into them. Um, and, and no, he, and, and so he'll say, or the Ralbag will also say that Hashem minimizes the extent to which a miracle deviates from the laws of nature, the extent to which the nature has to be broken. So for instance, the, the, he would say that uh, maybe the weather, the, the air condition, uh, you know, the condition of the air, the dryness of the air, it wasn't a humid day or whatever, all those things contributed to allowing there to be a fire created in, you know, in that circumstance that would come down because Hashem would minimize the amount to which he had to go against what nature would, uh, would but it's still ultimately a miracle. Still ultimately a miracle, just uh, the Rambam says when it, to, it, a miracle, it? he does. So why do they try to minimize it? Just because they say that Hashem, that they, they the uh, basically because the creation, in other words, the creation is designed the way it is for a reason, because it's the best possible way for the universe to run. So why would you want to tamper with that more than necessary? So you break it because it's not, because why does it, why are miracles, why do they happen at all? They happen because, uh, because you, in order to bring human beings to a greater understanding of God, since really, ideally, we should be able to come to an understanding of God just by observing the patterns and laws of nature and realizing there's a boy olam and seeking knowledge of the boy olam and living in, in line with his, uh, with his ways. But most people uh, won't see it so clearly just from that. They require some, uh, something uh, dramatic uh, to, to bring them to a recognition of God. So the breaking of the laws of nature highlights that there's something beyond nature that's controlling it and master and mastery of it, like we said about uh, Yitzhak Mitzrayim and the Makot. So the breaking of the laws of nature is actually, the laws of nature in general are the perfect system for promoting life and growth on earth for all creatures. But B'nai Adam sometimes need a special intervention for their intellect to uh, perceive certain truths that they won't be able to come to on their own. And so it is really for the same purpose as the laws of nature, meaning to facilitate the growth and the evolution of, uh, of creation, but it's to, for mankind, because obviously a cow doesn't recognize a miracle. All right, okay, go ahead. Yeah, so he took advantage again, and I'm saying that the, why were the people so quick to slaughter these these individuals that just a few minutes ago were their religious leaders? You know what happened? It's I, I'm suggesting that it's because through the way that it was presented, they are now understood that the real villains that had caused them all of this suffering were the Nevi'e Habal, and and therefore they turned their wrath against the Nevi'e Habal and uh, and listened to the instruction of Eliyahu. Did you say Eliyahu actually started all of them? Or? No, no, it's not just, it means under his, whenever it says that, it's like, it says that uh, Shlomo Amalek built the Beit HaMikdash. It doesn't mean with his own hands, you know. It means, <laughs> it's, uh, it, it means that he, uh, he had people working for him. Okay. You know, he, he, I, maybe he killed a few of them. I, I don't know. I wouldn't put it past him. 
you know, Shmuel and Avi cut Agag in half. So uh, I don't know. They must teach some interesting things in Navi school. You know, you, you think of it as being only a very intellectual place, but apparently, you know, they teach uh, martial arts and they're ninjas too. Okay. Yeah. Meaning what happened here? In a way, this is the typical phenomenon that we observe in, uh, in all of Tanakh, which is once the tshuva has been, now that the people have done Teshuvah and returned to God, just like in Sefer Shoftim, they returned to God, they demonstrated their commitment to following Hashem in the way that, a, if you want to go back to the Korban Pesach analogy, right, that you notice the word Pesach, Pasach, so the slaughtering of the Nevi'eh Baal is like the slaughtering of the Korban Pesach. Because to be able to do that, you have to have 100% conviction that you're right. You don't go put your hands on a priest, a, a holy priest of your religion and kill them if you're not 100% sure that they are a fake, uh, uh, you know, that they're a faker. So the fact that they did that was a kind of a Korban Pesach. So now they're ready to receive the Geshem that they've been waiting for. So in the end, Eliyahu didn't really compromise. In other words, he didn't, maybe he would have expected more, but he didn't, he held out to the end until there was a movement of Teshuvah. He did not bring the rain back. That is true. Because now he's saying, go eat and drink because here comes the sound of the rain. Just an observation. It seems to be like a motif throughout all the episodes of Eliyahu. Uh, when he was initially chastising them, he moved the cold Gadolki a little bit more. Then later, the eight cold Inonevi Here it talks about the the, the sound. Cold uh, right? Obviously later on Hakorev. Right, the idea of a cold listening. Yeah. It's like a motif. I don't know how to yeah, it, it seems but... like a, a motif of listening and responsiveness. Which makes sense, I mean, because the whole thing is that uh, they're not listening to the voice of Hashem, they're not listening to the Devar Hashem, and, uh, and their prayers are not being heard by the God that they're addressing to. You know, so this idea of, uh, of um, and, 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 uh, and Eliyahu's filot are heard. So yeah, there's an idea of, of, uh, of, of hearing and response. I agree, that's definitely, that's definitely a theme. The language weaves that together. Into the day. Well, yeah. like right? yeah, right yeah. that, that it happen right away. Maybe it could be. Let's let's read. Let's see if it's what it says. Yeah, he's like he's doing a tefillah. He's bending on the ground. Oh, I thought it's some like weird ancient like singing. No, it's like, you do not, not 
ויאמר הנערו, עלה נא חמת דרך הים, ויעל ויבק, ויאמר אין מאומה. ויאמר שוב שבע פעמים. Keeps checking. You don't want to be caught in the rainstorm on the way home. You better hurry. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what does it mean? Yeah, so it seems like, yeah, there, there is some, uh, <clears throat> there is some Musar to Eliyahu in the end, that, uh, that the rain doesn't come right away upon demand, like he uh, maybe expected. And he keeps having to send the boy to check if there's any rain. Right? So that would seem to suggest that there is that it's sort of a reminder that it's not totally under his control. And obviously the number seven being a symbolic number of Briat uh, Haolam is, uh, you know, would, would seem to point to the idea that he's recognizing the Borei Olam. In other words, that he, it can't be, uh, it's not, he, he acknowledges that ultimately it's the Borei Olam who is the master of the rain. So even though he, he was involved in deciding to withhold the rain, the restoration of the rain happens from Hashem and not from him. And so the uh, so he it, it that's why it's not an immediate response. I think exactly like what you were saying, Moshe. That it's uh, it's a little bit of a musar maybe. And the number seven for sure is always whenever you see the number seven has to do with the creation, and uh, that the that the creator is the one who. gets a little bit worse even after this with the uh the subsequent events right, right. so uh so yeah i think that's a very good point you see <clears throat> you see a big uh development of eliyahu in the story that he's <laughs> big- <laughs> Everyone sees the world as black and white as you do, but 
No, that's not, that's not the case. They see the world as white right now. They say, I said, well, they'll keep it tomorrow. They go back to being who they are. Right. And, and that, that's what Yisrael says to the Muslims. Today, I'm not going to kill you today. I'm going to kill you tomorrow because tomorrow everyone's going to forget it. Right? Like this, this, this change that happens overnight that Eliyahu kind of expects is not realistic. It's not something that's everlasting. Right, right. No, absolutely. That, that is the issue, right. That is the issue of Eliyahu, like in a nutshell, basically. That he doesn't, have, doesn't have any, he's a, he's a person of Midat Adin that it's uh, black and things are black and white. And if you, if you see things clearly, then you should just do it. Like what's, what's, what's holding you back? Just uh, follow the truth. That's, you see the truth? Okay, done. What, what more discussion is there? Shabbos the God follow so it's a, you know, it's a, so yeah, I, but I do think that there's a humbling of Eliyahu along the way. And we saw that before he reunites with, uh, or, you know, before his encounter with Ovadia and, uh, and after this also that he has to pray and wait and wait and wait for the rain to come. It doesn't come immediately at his beck and call like that. He also has to recognize Bore Olam uh, in order to get it. And uh and then he, and then it says right after that that the spirit of uh, the the hand of Hashem was on Eliyahu, and he girds his loins and he runs in front of Achav, meaning now he respects Achav because Achav became a true Melech Israel. Right, that's what it says. All of a sudden, Achav became a true Melech Israel that he had the potential to be, because he's a Melech that recognized God. And so therefore, Eliyahu becomes part of his court, just like a Navi is supposed to be part of the court of a good king. Or so Eliyahu thinks. Right? In the moment, that's what it appears like, and even humbles himself before Achav and says, now I'm going to be your, uh, your assistant, your advisor. So that's, that's, the, that's the moment of, there's a moment of... Uh, of uh, relief, a moment of happiness, and uh, seemingly uh, mission accomplished from Eliyahu's perspective. Wait, why is the middle of this chapter of Tarat Kitusah? What's going on there? Which part oh, is it again? From, from Patsuk Thoth, a very good text, where it says that Achav sent to get all the Nidim together, until Hashem Noah Elohim, Hashem Noah Elohim, Achtarat Kitusah. Yeah, because of the Egel Azav. Oh. Yeah, and, uh, and you know, Mil Hashem Elai. And they killed all the people who uh, worshipped the Egel Azav, and it was done by Levi also, and 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 uh, you know, and, and Eliyahu is a Kohen if he's Pinchas, right? Okay, so uh, tomorrow, same. Yeah. Um, Haven't discussed um, Friday morning. Um, for you. Um, with the, with the wife, what do you think about uh, like a Q&A? Sure, okay. That'd be good. Is that, or would you rather have a new topic that you discuss? No, a Q&A is fun because that way everybody gets to hear different things and it, it's more, maybe more interesting. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> it would make a hard 